Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back. It's, uh, it's great to be together, as always. Let me start out today just by saying to all of you, congratulations. Um, if you've been with us regularly, we are very near the end of what has been a fairly long journey because we are in Romans chapter 16 today, and we've been studying the book of Romans verse by verse for the better part of 18 months. Okay, it was a couple of Januaries ago when we kicked this thing off. And uh, if, you, if you're still here, man, you know, you're a soldier. Good for you. Uh, we've learned a lot. The book of Romans is an amazing book. It really is the foundation of church-age doctrine, uh, most specifically the doctrine of salvation. And we learned all kind of things walking through all of that. And, and most specifically, chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 are so very practical. We had a lot of theology coming up through the first 11 chapters. And then chapter 12 starts, therefore. And, and it rolls into several things that are just very practical. And so many people have responded how those practical lessons have really resonated with them and they've really learned a lot and it's really helped them. And, and I know it's been that way in my life as well. And so that's an exciting thing. If you have your Bibles open, and again, we're in Romans 16, the very last chapter, it's this week and it's next week, and we're done. And uh, we'll move on to some other things. But uh, I want you to notice that the very last verse of Romans chapter 15 could arguably be maybe what Paul intended to be the end of that letter. Now, God intended to add more, and that's why we're in chapter 16, and we're not going to ignore it. It is the chapter 16 with just a whole bunch of names. Greet all these people, and when you're reading the Bible faithfully, you're like, I can't pronounce them anyway, so whatever. And you just kind of, you know, blow. we're going to look at that today, okay? But notice that the book of Romans could arguably have ended with chapter number 15 in verse 33, where it ends and says, now the God of peace be with you all, amen. And it's as though, therefore, we come into then chapter 16, and really chapter 16 could be considered a postscript, a postscript means after the script is done. In other words, when you write a letter, you may have not even realized, if you write P.S., that's what it stands for, postscript, okay? And so I'm giving this message today a title called P.S., I Love You. Now, some of you might know that that was a movie, it was a chick flick, you know, about five or ten, ten years ago, I never saw it, but you know, romance, drama, not a lot of drama in Romans 16, really, but hopefully there's some things that we're going to learn. But P.S. I Love You, I think, is a fair title because what we have is certainly a postscript to the body of what the letter of Romans is, and it's just mentioning a lot of individuals by name, and in some cases, some details about their lives. And so we're hoping to learn some things from the postscript as God calls out by name certain people through the Apostle Paul. And so I think there's a lot of wonderful things he intends for us to learn about family and life and relationships and togetherness and caring and being connected. And really that's what I want us to see as we look at these last two weeks as we wrap up Romans chapter 16. So uh, if you will follow along, I will read the first 16 verses I do ask for your forgiveness, the pronunciation, no guarantee on the pronunciation. We'll do the best we can. Romans 16, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is in Centrea, 
that you receive her in the Lord as become a saints, and that you assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succorer of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia, unto Christ. Greet Mary, who has bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Salute Apellus, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of the, uh, are of, okay, Aristobulus household. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them which be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute, we know this one, Rufus. Chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. Salute one another, this is the important part, with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Okay, I really think God has some hidden lessons in here, and hopefully it'll be a blessing to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, certainly we don't want to gloss over a part of your word. You have inspired every word. You have preserved it perfectly for us and you have left it for us for a reason. And you have left this part in your word for us to learn something. So that is my prayer that you would teach us. I pray that we would somehow be able to associate some of the things we see in these names and these people, something with our lives, that maybe we might find ourselves hidden among these people in this list and that you might show us how that we can receive this which is your love letter written to us. We, again, thank you for your perfect word, and we pray that you would be honored through it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the first thing that I want us to see as we list all these names and all these different people is is that we are all different, yet we're the same. We're all different, and yet we're the same. And I think that's fairly intuitive. I mean, when we look at this list of names, and if you were to take some time as I have, and we're not going to go through all the details, and it's, I don't think it's that important other than this summary, you will notice that this is what we might call a mixed bag of various people, of different backgrounds, of different ministries, of different influence, of different position. And so, look, when we look around the world, even, even around here where we live in a fairly homogeneous society, everybody's unique, everybody's an individual, everybody's different from everybody else. That's fairly obvious. I mean, a very wise person said to me one time that it takes all kinds to make the world. And you know what I would say? That's also true of the church. It takes all kinds to make the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, when that is the case, and we are very diverse, and there is a lot of differences in our backgrounds and our personalities and and our positions in life, what that can present are challenges to the unity that God has given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our tendency as human beings to congregate around people that are like us and to kind of avoid people who are different from us. And in the world, differences of of various levels often cause division. 
But that's the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ because we all come together into one. And so when Paul lists all these names, what you will find is that some of them are males and some of them are females. In fact, it's almost a 50-50 split. You'll find that some of them are of a Jewish background and others of them are of a Gentile background. You will find that some of these people are servants to others who are free Roman citizens. You will find some of these people most likely are single and you will find others of which are married. You will find some that are young. You will find others that are old. And Paul writes this letter, and he adds this postscript, and he begins to send greetings to all of these different varied individuals who have various backgrounds and positions and and emphases in their life and places where they serve and where they come from. And what he's literally doing is he is applying the admonition of Scripture that we found back in Romans 14 and verse 1 to receive one another. It's also listed in Romans 15 and verse 1. And then in Romans 16, we find him literally living that out. When he says that everybody should receive one another in the love of Christ, Paul is demonstrating that by saying, look, all of you are very different, and I want to receive every one of you. He lives it out. He demonstrates it. He proves it, especially in the family of God. We have unity in diversity. Listen, our sociological background, and depending on who you are and where you come from, you may come from a mindset that is very exclusive, that's very ethnocentric, that you think very highly of yourself and your particular group that you enjoy, and you may look down your nose, some people do anyway, at others who are very different. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no room for any of that, and we can enjoy something much greater in Christ because it doesn't matter where we've come from. We are, in essence, not really different. We're all the same. We're all the same. And that's really what I think that he wants to emphasize here. There is good news, regardless of who you are, regardless of privilege or lack thereof. You have a place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's open to absolutely everybody. We are literally the same, and we're the same in a lot of different ways. First and foremost, it's very obvious, we're all the same because we're all sinners. The Bible says back in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. It's very clear that no matter who you are in life, where you were born into wealth or privilege or not, that every single one of us has a spiritual disease called sin. We're all the same in that plight. There's nothing uh, different about any of us. If you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are the same as me and everybody else. We are just forgiven. We are just thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for us. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter any of those things. You are forgiven because you're a sinner. We all are, and we're, for, and we're thankful for that. That is, the, that is the similarity of humanity leading up to the moment of salvation. In salvation, now that we have received Christ, now that we are in the body of Christ, We have another similarity, and I'm calling it solidarity. In other words, there's unity. There's unity in the body of Christ. There is, uh, regardless, again, of the outward distinctions of society, we are together in one. We are really all the same. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, makes this very clear. It says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And so once a person becomes in Christ, when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are baptized spiritually into his spiritual body, we are united. And all of these otherwise sociological divisions, ethnicity, status, gender, they all fade away. And we are unified. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Since coming to Christ, that's how we are to be. We are really all the same. And after this receiving of Christ, and as we continue in our growth in Christ, we are all the same in service to the Lord, serving the Lord. After we've been saved, we're, all, we're supposed to serve him. And as we read through this list of names in these first 16 verses, we come across terms. They, they, these people are called helpers. They're called servants. They're called beloved. They're called kinsmen. They're called approved. They're called chosen. These people are active in ministry. These are people who are actively doing things to reach out and to care for other people. Listen, I've had the privilege of traveling all over the world, and I have seen great differences of cultures and peoples all over the world. I've seen people who are very rich. I've seen people who are very poor. I've seen people who are very uh, educated. I've seen people who are very uneducated. I've seen discrepancy and prejudice all over. The world is full of great diversity, yet at our core, we're really just people. We're really all very much the same. We have very similar human needs, and we have very similar struggles, and we have very similar desires, and that is an advantage so that when an individual or a family decides that I'm going to surrender my life, like we just heard from Deb, and I'm going to go somewhere foreign, and I'm going to try and reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, they need to learn a new language. Yes, they need to learn a new culture. Yes, they need to learn a whole new way of life and thinking. But they can do that and effectively reach people because in our core, we're all the same. We have the same thoughts. We have the same human desires. We have the same needs. And so while we are different, one of the lessons we can learn from Romans 16 is that we're all really the same. We're all really the same. The second thing I'd like for us to learn is that we can learn from each other. We can learn from each other. Certainly, everybody can learn something from somebody, right? I mean, we've always said that. You just sometimes have to look for it. So let's look a little closer and see what we can learn. I've, I've selected a few of the people who have some things said about them in this list that characterize some things that I think that can be helpful for all of us as we look at our lives and in our body of believers as well. The first one is Phoebe. There's some written about her. It says that she is a servant of the church. It doesn't really give any more information about her personal life, but the odds are, and again, this is not biblically defensible, but the odds are that she was a single lady. The odds are that she by herself, without an extended family, was a servant to her family, which is the body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously, thank God for godly women, married or otherwise, that are willing to be servants of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something. Again, with my experiences in church ministry in many different places, a lot of church work, a lot of ministry would go undone if it weren't for the ladies. I mean, we should hear some amen in higher tones right about here. I mean, this is true. 
I mean, sadly, a characteristic of these days in which we live right now is that so many churches are hurting for finding what I will unashamedly call real men who will stand up and do their God-given responsibility of leading and, and, and setting the course for the charge of ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, when that is the case, and it is the case in so many places around the world, the overwhelming majority of the population of the church is female. If it weren't for the ladies, so little ministry would end up getting done. So little ministry would end up getting done. Now, I am so thankful for this church, and I am so thankful that we have so many men who are willing to be men of God and willing to stand and to do their, to do their thing and to pull their, their weight and to serve the Lord as they should. But I am so thankful for godly women who serve. Phoebe is called out, her characteristic, a servant of the church because the church is a family. And maybe that was the only family she had. And I'm gonna tell you, if you have ever lived a life where you are very limited in your personal family, maybe you're single, maybe your, your family has passed away, maybe you've moved away because of work and you're alone, you maybe, just maybe, value the family that is the church just a little bit more than other people. Again, when I say I've had the privilege to travel and to see a lot of things, that, that blessing can also be a curse. It also means that I have rarely lived in the same town as my blood relatives. I've always been somewhere else far away, and the church is my family. I take it very, very seriously, and we see Phoebe doing her thing, and it's awesome. Now, I'm gonna, there's a question I ask in your notes. Is Phoebe a deaconess of the church? And the reason I ask that question is, is that if you happen to read the New International Version of the Bible, it will say Phoebe, a deaconess, not servant, of the church. If you have the Revised Standard Version or the New Revised Standard Version, instead of the word servant, it will use the word deaconess of the church. Why is that? Well, that's because the Greek word that is translated servant in your King James Bible would be, and I'll mispronounce this, diakonos. Diakonos would be kind of like deacon. It's the same word that is translated deacon in other places. It's also translated serve. It's also translated minister. Because ultimately a deacon is a minister, is a servant, and that is true. And so that same word is used for Phoebe as it would be used for a lot of people, also including those people who hold the office of a deacon. But what we find is, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, that it would be impossible for Phoebe to actually be a deaconess of the church in the sense of holding an official position or an office within the church because that would then contradict other places that are very clear in the scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 that deals directly with speaking to those who would be ordained as deacons and the qualifications that they should have. In verse 11, it speaks to the wives of the deacons. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. That does presuppose that a deacon has a wife. Verse 12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. I'm sorry, but that office, therefore, is relegated exclusively to males as the male is the only one who biblically can be the husband 
of one wife. And so that would disqualify the opportunity and it would make the translation of throwing the word deaconess towards Phoebe an incorrect and substandard translation. Why is that the case? Well, you go back a chapter in 1 Timothy to chapter number 2 and verse number 12, and, and he makes it very clear. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, but I suffer or allow not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, the context of 1 Timothy 2 is the congregation of the church, and the context is, is that it doesn't say that women are never allowed to teach anybody anything. It's that they are not to be set up as an authority figure over men in the context of the local church. That is what God set up. And so when that is clearly defined by the Scriptures as the case, it is wrong would you agree to call phoebe a deaconess yes she is a servant of the church that is what deacons are by the way they are servants of the church by the way that's what we all should be we should all be servants of the church of the lord jesus christ but there are reserved certain people who will be selected to the office of a deacon and they will have the specific qualifications of first timothy chapter 3 and they will be exclusively Men, And that's why we do it that way in this church, because we desire to be exclusively biblical, and that's a very important thing. So Phoebe simply served the church, as so many people do, and as a result, Paul then calls upon the church in Rome that they would serve her. And that's what it says in verse number two, that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succorer, which literally means a helper, of many and of myself also. In other words, this lady has given her life to serve and to help people all over the place. Now she has need. Y'all need to jump in and help her out. Y'all need to jump in and help her out. And that's the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. The next couple are Priscilla and Aquila. It says, my helpers in Christ Jesus. There you have it, somebody else who's serving. Okay, so these are Paul's friends from his journeys and specifically in Corinth. And we're going to see that in Acts chapter 18. Priscilla and Aquila are a married couple. Uh, Interestingly, Priscilla is the wife and her name is listed first. But if you really go through the totality of the times that they are mentioned in the scripture, what you'll find is about half the time she's listed first and about half the time he's listed first. So it doesn't really matter who's listed first. I don't think so. At the end of the day, the two become one and they are serving together. This is a married couple that serve together. What a beautiful thing. So we see in Acts chapter 18, and if you look at verse number two, there you have it. We have Aquila and Priscilla. We find out that they are Jews, but they are from Italy. Literally, they are from Rome, and they were kicked out of Rome. And then eventually, obviously, they returned because as Paul writes this letter, he says, hey, greet them. So they were kicked out. They went back into Asia Minor. They served with Paul. That's what we see in Acts 18, 18. They served together with Paul. That's the next verse, right? As Paul was serving and ministering and starting churches among the, 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 the journeys and the, and the churches that he was planning, he comes across in Corinth in that area called Achaia, Centrea, it's in that area. Aquila and Priscilla served together with him. You go a little further down in Acts 18, and verse number 26, they're mentioned again. And in Acts 18, 26, they take a guy named Apollos. And Apollos was a guy who had believed in God, the God of the Hebrews, but he never really understand the whole New Testament thing. He hadn't really got the full story about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All he believed was the baptism of John. 
And so Aquila and Priscilla are the ones that take Apollos and they set him aside and they begin to explain to him the full counsel of the word of God. That tells me that Aquila and Priscilla working together, they were Bible teachers. They were serious students of the word of God and they were able to communicate it effectively to others. They did this ministry independently of Paul. Okay, so they weren't just helping Paul and following him around everywhere. So they're originally from Rome, extracted, able to finally return. But what we find is wherever they found themselves, in Rome, out of Rome, with Paul, without Paul, they're serving the Lord and they're serving the Lord together. Man, that's a life we can learn from. That's something that God would have for us to do. Speaking of this couple, it says in verse number four, who have for my life laid down their own necks. You know as you read the book of Acts that this was a time of great persecution of the church. You know that there was people from uh, the pagan Roman government that were out to slaughter Christians every chance they had. And obviously there came about some sort of circumstance that we don't know the details of where they were threatening Paul. And Priscilla and Aquila would have stepped up and said, look, if you're going to kill somebody, just kill us. Literally laid down their own necks, as it were, on the chopping block. Kill us if you want, let him go. Let me just tell you something. As a, as in any kind of ministry, but certainly as a leader in ministry, that's the kind of friends you want to have. And I'm not saying just to save your own neck. I'm telling you, when Paul referred back, look back in Romans 15 and verse 32. That's why I emphasized to you last time, it says that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. You know who's going to refresh you if you are a weary servant of the Lord who gives it his all 100% of the time like Paul did? Hanging out with people who do the same thing together with you whether you are together geographically or not and man these guys Aquila and Priscilla they were in it all the way to the end and Paul says I can't wait to see you. that's true refreshing man you need friends like this in ministry more than you need money for ministry you need friends like this in ministry more than you need a lot of things you need somebody who will stand by you and stand by the Lord and say we're going all the way with this thing I don't care what it costs me I don't care what it takes that's Aquila and Priscilla. That's Aquila and Priscilla. You know, I've never served in the military. I watch movies. Uh, people who are in the police force, people who have jobs that are high risk for personal danger, you know, they always make statements like, you know, if you've ever been in the foxhole with a guy, you know, you're friends for life. And people who have together served in some area where I had to put my life in your hands and you had to put your life in my hands. You never forget those guys. And literally, even in a ministry context, Paul had that going on with Aquila and Priscilla. They laid down their own necks for me. It goes on, it says in verse number five, likewise greet the church that is in their house. The church met in their house. What a wonderful thing that is. So, so one of the things we can learn is that, and a lot of you already know this, the church, by definition, biblically, it's not a building, right? It is a group of people. We are the church. This structure, as thankful as we are for it, is not the church. The church are the people, certainly, right? Because the church was in their house. They didn't jam a building in their house. They are the church, and the church was in their house. This is a very simple truth. This is something that anybody who even reads the Bible in a cursory way fully understands. There are groups of people out there today 
who I don't understand why, but for some reason they make this very simple little lesson a great big huge deal. They make it like we found something nobody else has ever found before. Man, the church is not a building. And so they, they, get a, they, they want you to learn a whole new vocabulary. And they say, you're not allowed to say we're going to church because that makes you think we're going to a building. And so you can't say we're going to church. You've got to say we're going to the gathering or whatever. And they make up new words for that kind of stuff. They, they don't say that we're going to, you know, we're going to do, they say we're, we're going to meet in missional community. I mean, they make up whole new words of vocabularies when at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is the Bible's very clear. We can say we're going to have a church service. Wayne talked about it, and we're going to have a worship service. Well, we understand that while we are meeting together, this is a time to serve the Lord, to serve one another. We are worshiping together, but there's nothing wrong with saying we're going to church. There's nothing, we understand we are going to meet with the church. Maybe we left out a couple of prepositions. We understand what we're talking about. The church met in their house, okay, And so you just have to be careful when people get too extreme about certain details of things that are really very simply understood by everybody, don't let them go overboard. Just relax knowing the the truth. Now, on the other side of the coin, they had what we might refer to as a house church. In other words, what you need to understand is this, because again, people are funny. People are weird, man. They, they just, they come up with weird ideas and they want to teach doctrines of things that are just very simple statements. Paul just says, greet the church that's in their house. That is not a prescription that henceforth and forever, a church, a true biblical church, will never have a building. They must meet in houses. No, that's not what it says. It just so happens that that's where they met. By the way, a very smart strategy for beginning new churches. Some of you someday may be called out to go and to begin new churches from scratch. Very frequently what you'll find is is that you'll begin in your living room and then you'll move to your garage and then you'll go to your backyard as long as the weather's okay and then eventually maybe you can gather some money and rent a place. I mean, at the end of the day, the family of God needs a house to meet in, right? So if we have a building, who cares? That's awesome, that's a great tool, but that doesn't define us as to who we are. They're a house church, that's who they are, that's how they got started, it's a new thing. But here's the thing I want you to get. Priscilla and Aquila were involved in starting churches. That's what they were involved in. That's what their ministry is all about. That's what God used them to do. They were involved in starting churches. The next person, Epinatus. He says, my well-beloved, Epinatus. Interesting, too, it says in verse number five about Epinatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ. Epinatus may very well have been Paul's very first convert when he went down to Corinth. Achaia is the region where Corinth is located in southern Greece. And you know what? That makes Epinatus, Paul's, at least in that region, his firstborn child. You know you never forget your firstborn. I mean, you don't forget any of your kids, hopefully. Um, the Duggars might, I don't know. But I don't. I only got a couple. You never forget the firstborn. And especially in the Lord. If you have labored in ministry, you probably can remember the first guy or the first lady God let you lead to Christ. That's who Epinatus is. He is well beloved in the Lord because he's the first fruits. He's the beginning. He's the guy who got the whole thing rolling. Now there's a church in Corinth. Now there's things going on there. And it all started with one guy. No matter what he's doing, we don't really know much about him. But we know this, Paul still loves him. 
Paul still cares about him. You lead somebody to Christ, and he's the very first one that started a movement. You're never going to forget that guy. Whether he was doing well or whether he was struggling, we don't even know. You can, you can suppose if you want to. At the end of the day, Paul loved him. My well-beloved in the Lord. You never forget those. And you're always, like, like a parent, you're always concerned about their well-being. You're concerned about how they're doing. You're concerned that they're still plugged in and that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's a pretty cool deal. He loves that. And he's never, ever going to forget who Epinatus is. The next two, Andronicus and Junia. It says that they are of note among the apostles in verse number seven. Now, to be fair, to be of note among the apostles could possibly have the meaning that these two guys were noted as being special by the apostles. So they are distinct and separate from the apostles, and the apostles said, hey, take note of those guys. They were of note among the apostles. That's a possibility. Here's another possibility. There is, without a doubt, and if you happen to be with us this morning at 9 a.m., we went through the long, detailed list, okay? There is, without a doubt, a list of people in the Bible who are called, very, very specifically, apostles. And it is not the 12, and it is not Paul. There are other people, okay? Barnabas, Silas, Timothy. There are other people. James, the Lord's brother. There are other people who are specifically called apostles. And they have nothing to do with the 12, and they have nothing to do with Paul, okay? Andronicus and Junia could very well also be, they are of note among the apostles, meaning that they themselves are among this group, this extra group that is called the apostles. And they are noteworthy among these other apostles. If, if what I'm saying to you sounds unusual or new, just grab somebody who's in the 9 a.m. class and they can explain it to you because we just finished it. We just had this lesson this morning. Okay, but literally there's eight people total and they can give you all the references and get you that information. But they themselves were noted as apostles. This is the understanding that I think is the most natural because it is in cooperation with all of these other names as well that are given as other apostles, okay? That all comes from the fact, and again, for many of you this is review, but for some of you this is new. The very word apostle from the Greek language, if you were to translate it, is, is a compound word that literally means one who is sent from somewhere, an apostle is somebody who is sent forth from a group like a church. That, that's, that's literally what the word means in its most simple form. Well, the word that we use in English comes from a Latin root, and it is the word missionary, which means exactly the very same thing. A missionary is one who is commissioned and sent forth from a group of churches, one specific but together partnering with many, sent out to carry out God's mission. And so when we see this idea, we see that Andronicus and Junia certainly are involved in ministry. Certainly they are on a mission, and certainly they are out doing something special, okay? It says about them in verse number seven, who also were in Christ before me. Well, Paul got saved in Acts chapter 9, so Andronicus and Junia would have been of Jewish origin, and they would have to have received Christ as their Savior at some point prior to Acts chapter 9. So they've been around for a long, <clears throat> excuse me, for a long time. 
and they've been serving the Lord faithfully for a long time. Paul says that they're his kinsmen. By being kinsmen, of course they're Jews. Maybe it actually means that they're his kinsmen to the extent that they're of the tribe of Benjamin. I don't know. That's possible. But certainly they're of a Jewish background. They were saved just as this thing started to get rolling that God was taking the gospel to the rest of the world. And Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy, although they get a lot of print in the book of Acts, certainly were not the only people carrying the gospel to the rest of the world. And we see Andronicus and Junia, people we otherwise would never know about if it weren't for uh, Romans chapter 16. And these guys were involved, and they were serious followers of Christ. How do I know that? Because he says, my fellow prisoners. Now, we know that Paul was thrown in prison in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Maybe they were part of that. I don't know. Maybe they were just also in prison somewhere else because of the persecution uh, of their faith in Christ. I don't know. But whatever the case is, because they were serious followers, they were willing to go through persecution, they've been saved for a long time, they're traveling the world even though they were of Jewish origin. I mean, these guys are out there getting it done, and Paul greets them, and he says, man, I, I want to I salute them. I want to greet them as well, because they're out there. They're notable believers. The next one on the list is the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. The household of Narcissus. The way that that's written is very unusual because it's written as though Narcissus himself, if I'm saying nar- Narcissus, I don't know, is he himself is excluded from the group. It's written in a way that possibly the house, Paul's greeting the household, not Narcissus with his household. Okay, wh- what does that mean? Well, again, culturally speaking, the odds are that he was likely a wealthy man who had a household of servants. And that these people would have been the servants of his house who were actually believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you do a little word study on the names, and you could do that with any of these names, but in this particular case, I thought it was interesting, so I bring it to your attention. Because the name Narcissus, literally, if you were to translate it, it's the name of a flower, the daffodil. Okay, that doesn't sound too manly, but, you know, whatever. Hi, I'm Daffodil. You know, how you doing? Um, That's his name. Okay, so if you study a little bit about narcissists, and any of you happen to know anything about Greek or Roman mythology, he was a character in Greek and Roman mythology. Now, it's mythology. I get it. But listen to this. Okay, so in Greek and Roman mythology, Narcissus was known for his beauty. He was very proud. And as the story goes, he's cruising along, and he sees this pond of water, of still water, and he looks down, and he sees his reflection in the water. And he's like... Wow, that is a beautiful person. And he falls in love with the image. And he so pines away for this image that he, he fails to have the ability to actually receive the object of his love. The object of his love is himself. And he's unable to ever really realize that fully because it's just a dumb reflection. Those guys didn't have that figured out yet. Okay, so the story goes in mythology. He kills himself. He kills himself. Well, that's interesting because in our language, we use the word narcissist, narcissism, somebody who really loves themselves, a lover of self. Well, whether the individual is true of the individual or not, we don't have any revelation other than the fact that it's very interesting 
Because practically speaking, here's the idea. Really loving yourself, that'll kill you. The way you need to find life is to deny yourself and to love Jesus. That's how you find life. So we don't really know the details of this particular man. We know that his household loved the Lord. Likely he didn't. Maybe that wasn't even his name. Maybe he was just referred to as narcissist in the sense of the believers who were in the household of that really selfish, self-loving guy. Maybe that's the way he meant it. Whatever the case might be, we find that it represents somebody who's not saved. Because loving yourself is never a path to salvation. It's denying yourself and loving the Lord. That's the path. And lastly, we just have some groups of believers. And so if you look in verses 14, there's a list of names and the brethren which are with them. In verse 15, there's more names. It says, and all the saints which are with them. So throughout, even with these lists of names of individuals, what we find is that there's an amazing emphasis on churches. The real emphasis in Romans 16 is not on this abject individuality. The emphasis is the fact that we are to live a corporate life of faith. Jesus Christ gave me as an individual eternal life, but he gave it to me individually with the goal and intention that I would live it together with you. That's what he intends. That's his goal. So we see Phoebe, and she's a servant of the church. We see Priscilla and Aquila, and they had a church in their house. We see Andronicus and Junia. They're missionary church planters. We see the household of Narcissus. These are groups of people that are together. We see these other lists of names and the brethren that are with them. I want you to hear me. I'm going to say a statement that, I guess just a little bit, is intentional shock factor. And that's this. Jesus Christ did not die for individuals. Jesus Christ died for the church, specifically and explicitly from the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 25 says this. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, the church. Christ gave his life so that there would emerge a body of believers. Yes, of course, it includes individuals. Yes, of course, each of us as an individual makes up our own mind to decide whether we want in or not. But to to become in is in Christ, which is in his body, which is the church. And so you need to understand, sometimes people in evangelism use this tool, and I'm not against people using tools, but it's not completely accurate. People want to say, if you were the only person on earth, Jesus said for you. Okay, I mean, that sounds real romantic. But the truth of the matter is, you're not the only person on earth. And Jesus died for the fact that he would create his replacement, the church, which is his body to carry on his ministry forever. And yes, that includes individuals. Thank God. It includes individuals. But he died to create that body. He wants and designed for us to live our Christian life together, sharing it with one another. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says this. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And you probably have heard that verse emphasized, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So you're here together with us this morning. Congratulations for not forsaking that. That's a wonderful and important thing. He goes on and he says, as the manner of some is. And you know that's true. You know that there's people who have as their habitual manner is to not be in church, and occasionally they are in church. And they would say, oh, I love Jesus, I believe Jesus, but, you know, my preacher is the guy on TV on Channel 32 or whatever. And, you know, and they just say, I'm doing this on my own. I don't want anything to do with, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Um, well, you know, the church is his body. Um, try that with your wife sometime. You know, love you, honey, hate the body. That ain't, you know, how, how long is that going to go? I mean, we just don't think. The manner, what is your manner, brothers and sisters? Is it your manner to be in church and not forsake it? Or is it your manner to be out and occasionally I show up, you know, I'll bless you with my presence. I mean, basically all you got to do is take your calendar and check it out. How many you in and how many you out? Winner is the manner, okay? That's your manner, whoever is the winner. And that's why it's important that you make Sundays a priority. That's why it's important that you make time for the believers. Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you. How can we be comforted together? By the mutual faith, both of you and me. I mean, we have mutual faith, so we comfort each other together. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9 concerning service. For we are laborers, how? Together, with God. Ye collectively are God's husbandry. Ye collectively are God's building. So there's certainly some things that we can learn from each other. There's certainly some things we can learn from these brothers and sisters. And the last thing I want us to learn is point number three. It's fairly obvious, I know, I'm good at that. We have our names on a list. We have our names on a list. Okay, so consider this. If Proverbs 30 and verse 5 is true where it says every word of God is pure, and if 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 are true where it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works, and we get to Romans 16, and there's just, you know, greet this guy, greet that guy. Greet this lady, greet that lady. Greet this couple, greet that one. Greet. And, if, and if every word is pure, and if God preserved it for us, and everything is profitable for all these things, if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, yeah, right, so, how, I mean, how's that profitable? I mean, I mean, I'll read it. I'm supposed to. I'm not really sure what I'm getting out of that. Come on now. Somebody, somebody's rolling with me on this one, right? I mean, you're thinking that. I've thought that. Okay, so we've already seen some things, but there's a couple more things I want you to get before we're done. The first one is this. The Bible's a special book. I really don't have to emphasize that too hard here, but I want to point something out. The Bible is not an ordinary book. Hebrews 4, 
12 makes it very clear that the Bible is alive. It is not just ink and paper. This book is alive. The Word of God is quick. That means alive. It is alive. It goes on in verse 12 at the end, and it says that the Bible, again, the context, is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of your heart. Have you got any other book on your shelf that can discern your thoughts and your intents? This book can. It's a unique book. Not only that, but this book, right? I mean, I don't have to hammer it too hard. You guys get it. This, this book is God's owner's manual for life. There is only one book that truly is the book that tells you how to live your life right. Right? It's this one. So, I'm going to make a statement. And it's this. The Bible is the book of life. That's what it is. The book of life is described for you in the Bible. It's the book of life. Revelation 20, verse 12, and then verse 15. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Jump down to verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God has books. A lot of them contain the works of all of humanity that don't believe him. There is one special book called the book of life. And this special book has names written in it. And this special book of names are the names that will describe who are the people that are living with me in eternity. If your name's not in the book, you're not going. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 5. To the church in Sardis. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. There is a book that has names in it. And if you're going to have eternal life, your name is in that book. Have you ever really thought about what the book of life really is? I mean, I don't want to blow your mind or anything, but have you ever thought that maybe, just maybe, it's this old King James Bible for you English-speaking people? I mean, have you ever really thought about what he says there is one? It is the only book that is alive. It's the only book that defines what life is supposed to be and how we're supposed to live it. And you know what? It's full of names. I mean, lists and genealogies, names we can and can't pronounce. I mean, it is a book. Have you ever read through the whole Bible? Name after name after name after name after name. I mean, just what if you stand before the Lord that ultimate day and he pulls out your Bible? to see if your name's written in it. I mean, if, if, just roll with me for a second, if that were the case, would that make you look at your Bible different? Would that make you think, hey, wait a minute, I better pay closer attention to this thing. I mean, it did me when I first had this thought. But now a bunch of you are thinking this, because I know, I, I know. My name's Jeff. <laughs> I've read the Bible. It ain't in there. <laughs> Stinks to be me. Okay, 
How is that? Okay, Jeff, that's a cool thought, but, you know, we're Americans. I got an American name, you know. It ain't Epinatus. You know, it ain't none of that stuff. You could call me a narcissist. That's not the idea. (laughs) Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17, I want you to notice something. Written to the church in Pergamos. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Do you realize that in many places around the world, I remember when I was in Africa this was true, that there are peoples that have whatever names of their cultural language group, that when they get saved, they take a Christian name. Have you ever heard of that? It's fairly common in certain places. They get saved and they take a Christian name. Why would they do that? Well, my parents didn't name me a name that's in the Bible. Okay, well, if I've received Christ as my Lord and Savior, maybe he's already assigned me a new name. Maybe that name is going to be commensurate with whomever I behave most like. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Maybe my new name, boy, maybe it could be Daniel. Maybe it could be, you know, Maybe it'll be, you know, one of the duds. I don't know. But the Bible, I think there's a fair argument to say, for sure it's a special book. It's the book of life. Listen, if there is a book of life on this planet, it's this one. Would you agree? Maybe God's got another one somewhere. I don't know. But not only is the Bible a special book, the next point is the church is a special body. The church, for sure, is unique. And when we talk about the church, there's a term that a lot of people use. You don't actually find this in the Bible, but it's, it's descriptive. It's okay. And that is the universal church. The universal church. And so that would describe all the people of all ages that have ever received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior from the resurrection to the rapture. They've been born again, and they are placed into this one body of Christ, which is referred to universally, therefore, the universal church, the one body that lives with him in eternity. That idea comes from places like 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, where he says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we've been all made to drink into one Spirit. That one body is the one great giant body of all believers of all time. No question about it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 18 says, And he, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, comma, the church. The church is his body. We are all baptized into, spiritually into one grand body, right? And we're all together in it in him. So the Bible uses the term church sometimes to refer to this one true, ultimate, eternal body of Christ, that actually the word church, by definition, is not the best description of that body yet, because the word church means a called out assembly of believers, and all of us believers of all times, from the resurrection until now, all over the globe, 
we have never all been assembled together until the rapture. At the rapture, we will then become the eternal, true, one, universal church. Right now, it's a little ambiguous. It's not fully accurate. However, now, and the vast majority of usages of the word church in your Bible are local churches. And that's your last point, the local church. And the local church is God's design. It's not man's design. It is the earthly representation of a heavenly reality. Kind of like the tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle was an earthly representation of the eternal heavenly tabernacle of God. It's a picture. It's a forerunner of something which is yet to come. Albeit an imperfect picture. No one particular local church is a perfect representation of what the eternal ultimate one will be, right? I mean, we try to make sure that all of the members of First Baptist Church are genuinely born-again Christians, but somebody might slip through the cracks. I mean, we take you at your word. But nobody's slipping through the cracks into the eternal church of God, right? Only truly born-again people get in. We saw in 1 Corinthians 12, you enter that body via spiritual baptism. Well, the earthly version is you enter into the unity of the fellowship of this local body via water baptism, which is a picture of the spiritual that would have already taken place in your life. The local body is led by shepherds under the guidance of the great shepherd, certainly, I'm going to tell you something. As long as I have been doing ministry, and I've been saved for over 30 years, I've been in ministry leadership for well over 20, I hear people all the time, all over the world, who want to argue and complain about church membership and putting your name on a roll in the church. There's no Bible. Show me the Bible in ver- the chapter and verse for that one. That's not biblical, they say. Well, just consider that since the local church is the physical illustration and forerunner of the universal, and since God has a book written with all of the names of the members of the universal church in it, whether it's this or something else, and by the way, did it ever cross your mind? Did, has it ever occurred to you? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? That's something else. Okay, has it ever occurred to you? You'll think about that about lunchtime. Why does God need your name written down? I mean, is he forgetting? I mean, is it like, oh, Jeff. My bad, dude. I mean, no, he knows. There has to be another reason. It is a pattern for us. So since there's a book, and since your name only appears in the ultimate book of life, as a result of your free will choice to say, I want in, put me on the roll. Is it so crazy that the earthly representation of the heavenly eternal reality asks you to decide of your own free will to put your name voluntarily written down on a list of the membership of the local assembly? 
I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's the most biblical representation to prepare you for what eternity is all about. And you are welcome to visit us as long as you want and never sign your name on the roll of this church. You are welcome. Nobody's going to bug you. And it is totally up to you whether you want to be in or you want to be out. But if you have come here for a long time and for whatever reason have never taken the step of membership or baptism for that matter, would you seriously consider, I mean, do you really ultimately want to stand before Christ and just say, I didn't really want to be a part of that? I mean, you'd hate for him to say, do you want to be a part of this? I mean, you don't, I think it's that important. I think it's that important because the church is a special body. Listen, God's interested in individuals. He remembers their names. He remembers your name. That's a blessing. And he wants us to enjoy the family of God, the fellowship and the unity of believers. And so the last thing I have for you is God desires that we are united and demonstrate genuine affection. That's really, all joking aside, all that is meant by greet one another with a holy kiss. It is genuine unity and affection. And those of you that have traveled, you know that in many places in this world, it is a very common greeting. Whether it's men with men, women with women, whatever, it is a, it is a, it is a kiss on the cheek. It is, it, is a, it is a show, a sign of affection. Okay, it's not a part of our culture. But the idea is it's holy. Okay, if I go to the young people and I'm like, greet each other with a holy kiss, the fear is it's not holy. Okay, go to the older people and you say, greet each other with a holy kiss. You're like, I'm all about holiness. Keep your lips off me. I mean, you know, everybody thinks about it a little different. The idea is God wants us to genuinely love each other and be able to express that. You know how hard it is to embrace and give a kiss on the cheek to somebody you just really deeply can't stand? I mean, that's just a tough thing to do. And he says, the churches of Christ salute you. A fellowship of like-minded churches that somehow actually have relationship with one another. Kind of like we've developed with a bunch of churches that enjoy coming here for our Bible conference and some of you like going to their churches. And Look, we can't know everybody's church everywhere, but we've developed a fellowship of like-minded biblical churches and that's, and we greet one another and that's a wonderful thing. So we're going to wrap it up. I got a couple of questions and you can put your Bibles away if you want to. But my question for you is this, twofold. First off, is your name written in the book of life? I mean, would you really want to be standing in front of the Lord on your last day and not be sure? You can be sure. He loves you enough. He extends you the very invitation and says, look, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you're not sure that you're saved, you need to take care of that today. And the other question for you is this. For those of you that would say, yes, I know I'm, I know I'm saved. Do you find your identity within the context of the local church of born-again believers? Or would you characterize yourself as this bold individualist and you're kind of just out there on your own, a free electron somewhere, not really connected to the greater body? Or let me say this. If somebody wrote to the church which is in New Philadelphia... Might they greet you because they expect you to be here because that's what you do? Or would nobody really know about you because whether your name's on a list or not, you're really, 
not apart. I mean, these are the admonitions that we get from Romans 16. And God is saying to you in this postscript, hey, psst, I love you. Do you want to, how, how do you need to express your love back to him? What is it that he's asking you to do? That's what I want to ask you to consider right now. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray and we'll be done.